friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. further ado, I'm going to invite my sweet wife, Annie, up. She's going to lead us this morning in our passage and our teaching. So give her a hand. There we go. Come on. There we go. Yeah. Good morning. Is this on? Okay. Um, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 7 today. And I'm going to give a little background before we jump into the chapter. Um, at this point, there is no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes, and the state of both the religious and national life had slipped to a new low. In the first few chapters of 1 Samuel, we see that the high priest Eli had failed both as a leader and a father. Eli's sons, who had largely taken over the priestly duties from Eli, were corrupt, greedy, and immoral. They took sacrifices that were intended for the Lord, for themselves, and they even slept with women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Eli never attempted to restrain or correct his sons, and instead of leading the people to serve God, they led them to sin against him. As wickedness took hold of lives, the word of of God became proportionately scarce. The word of the Lord was rare in those days, it says in 1 Samuel 3. In 1 Samuel 4, while I camped at Ebenezer, which might sound familiar, and we'll talk about that more in a little bit, Israel was defeated by the Philistines in battle. And so they decided to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield so that God would surely help them. And instead of humbly repenting and seeking God, they turned to methods that God never approved. Eli's sons, Phineas and Hopney, carry the ark into the camp to roaring cheers from all the army, only to see Israel defeated in greater numbers than before. 30,000 men died. The ark is captured by the Philistines. Eli's sons are killed in the battle, and when Eli hears this news, he himself falls back and dies. The glory had departed from Israel, for the ark of God had been captured. It says in Samuel's 4.22. So what we see in Israel at that time is not so different than what we've become sadly used to in some American Christianity today. We've seen greed and bullying and moral failures in Christian leaders that have left us disappointed and disillusioned. And we've been made to feel unsafe at times in the house of the Lord. We've lost ground in society and culture and tried to regain it forcefully through politics and power, because God's on our side, right? And I think the truth is that God doesn't pick sides, but we do. And we can choose to align ourselves with God's mission on earth or to stand against it. Israel was not in alignment with God's plan, and they paid a price. They sought his power, his strength, his hands, but not his face. In this way, most of us have imitated them. We've forgotten the one thing needed which is to enthrone God in our lives and to seek to do his will by faith in Jesus Christ. So we come to chapter 7, 
And since that defeat at the hands of the Philistines, 20 years had passed. The ark was returned to Israel because God afflicted the Philistines with plagues while they kept it. Matthew Poole writes that God was no loser by this event, so the Philistines were no gainers by it. In Israel, all things considered, received more good than hurt by it, as we shall see. The ark comes to Kirith-Jerim, not to the tabernacle in Shiloh. God raises up Samuel to replace Eli as a faithful priest, one who will do according to what is in God's heart and mind. But never did time seem so hopeless for Israel than when Samuel arose. At this point in Israel's history, they are living under the shadow of their greatest failure when the glory of God had departed from Israel. The Philistines were stronger, they had better military equipment, and they were fast reducing Israel to the condition of a subject race. What we'll see, though, is that God is just beginning to show his glory. So we're going to start in chapter 7, verse 2. It says, Time went by until 20 years had passed since the ark had been taken to Kirith-Jerim. Then the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. Samuel told them, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, get rid of the foreign gods and the asterisks that are among you, and set your hearts on the Lord, and worship only him. Then he will rescue, rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites removed the Baals and the Ashtoreths and only worshiped the Lord. Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord on your behalf. When they gathered at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out in the Lord's presence. They fasted that day, and there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the Israelites at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that the Israelites had gathered at Mizpah, their rulers marched up toward Israel. When the Israelites heard about it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. The Israelites said to Samuel, don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us so that he will save us from the Philistines. Then Samuel took a young lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel, and the Lord answered him. Samuel was offering the burnt offering as the Philistines approached to fight against Israel. The Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines that day and drew them into such a confusion that they were defeated by Israel. Then the men of Israel charged out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, striking them down all the way to a place below beth Afterwards, Samuel took a stone and set it upright between Mizpah and Shin. He named it Ebenezer, explaining the Lord has helped us to this point. There's a few aspects I want to explore in this passage. The first is how do God's people position themselves to experience revival? And second, how did God show up for his people? The first thing we see in the people is that revival begins with longing. Verse 2 says that the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. And what an encouragement this is, that God sees and hears our heart's desire for his presence. Longing grew in their hearts over time, and maybe you felt that ache, a sense that your relationship with God isn't where you want it to be or where it has been in the past, a desire for more of God's presence, a longing for nearness to God. Maybe your longing is based on the fact that our world is broken. And if the past two years haven't shown us that our world is broken, then I don't know what will. If you are in a season marked by longing, I just whether it's for the first time or to return, the work of God is already underway in your life. The second thing we see is that the people fix their hearts on God in verse 3. As we've talked about in previous weeks, revival requires a decision to serve God only and clear out the idols and false crutches that we've erected in our lives. It means focusing our attention on God. 
our friend John Tyson defines worship as our heart desire plus sacrifice and offering to that desire. What our hearts long for and we are willing to sacrifice for is what we truly worship. So what are the things that you will sacrifice your time for? Where are you offering your money? You might be in a place of longing for God, but if your sacrifice and offering are not given to God, who or what are you truly worshiping? Samuel called the people to get rid of the foreign gods and asherahs that were among them and to set their hearts on God and worship him only. There's a single-mindedness there that the people um, displayed and that I think that God's inviting us into as well. The next is confession and prayer. All of Israel assembled at Mizpah and Samuel prayed for them. Walter Kaiser writes in Revive Us Again, let it be marked down as an extremely important principle that there can be no real lasting work of God in revival without a genuine work of intercession on behalf of the people of God. We've read about and heard stories about revivals that began because a small, humble group of people prayed. Stories like the revival in the Hebrides, where two old women prayed and the Spirit of God poured out in their community so that lives were changed. I've read stories of Charles Finney and the Second Great Awakening and how his ministry would not have happened without the travailing prayers of his co-laborer, Daniel Nash. He would arrive in each town that Finney would go to early he'd pray down the power of God into the meetings which Finney was about to hold. And if we look further back in Samuel, Samuel's story started because of the prayers of his mother who prayed for him and longed for him in the temple. Um, so prayer is central and crucial to revival. Confession, too, is central. Verse 6 says that they drew water and poured it out in the Lord's presence. And um, I don't think they were just pouring some out for Jesus. They're homeboy. Um, Lamentations 2.19 calls on God's people to pour out your hearts like water before the Lord's presence. Kaiser writes, surely this act signaled a deep contrition and humiliation for their sins. The water in this case may have reflected tears and grief and misery that their sins had caused them, for which they were now sorry. They fasted and confessed. And confession allows us to loose our hearts from all the junk and stuff that binds them and holds us captive and to be healed. So God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us when we confess. Lastly, the people counted on God's help and they acted boldly. The Philistines see all of Israel gathered at Mizpah and they decide to attack. So even when God's people were doing all the right things, trouble came to them and they were afraid. They said to Samuel, don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us so that he will save us. What a difference this response is than the last time they battled the Philistines. Where there was pride, now there's humility. As 1 Peter 5 says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he will exalt you. The Lord answered Samuel's prayer and dramatically intervenes. God delivered Israel from the Philistines, and for Israel, this was a turning point. The nation was reborn and unified in the joyful service of God. The Philistines didn't invade Israel again for the rest of Samuel's life. The cities that they had taken from Israel were restored, and Israel even was able to rescue their surrounding neighbors from Philistine control. And so it's at this point that Samuel sets up the stone and named it Ebenezer, meaning stone of help. And if you'll remember Ebenezer, I said we'd talk about that more, because Ebenezer isn't first mentioned as a, a symbol of God's faithfulness. 
It's first mentioned in chapter 4 as the location where Israel was defeated by the Philistines 20 years before. That's where the ark was captured. So it's the place of Israel's greatest failure. That's where the glory of God left Israel. So the Ebenezer that Samuel raises is not just a reminder that God helps us in times of trouble, because he does that, but it's a reminder that God takes our greatest failures, the parts of our story that seem so dark and so far beyond God's reach, and he claims victory over them. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't ignore our failures and past sins. He doesn't gloss over them. He actually goes to those places where we failed the greatest, where we are furthest from him, and he redeems them and gives us victory. And that's where he sets the stone of remembrance. So as we wrap up, I'm going to invite the band back up. And I believe that God has an invitation for us today. Maybe for some of you, you've had that sense of longing, an ache in your heart for God. If you feel a sense of longing for God, just know how delighted he is in you. He delights in your desire for him. That's the best news he's had all week. He doesn't wish you had it all together or you had it more figured out. He sees you starting to turn towards him and he wants to answer you and give you more. He wants to invite you to serve him only. So our prayer team's gonna come up and they would love to pray for you just to seal the work that God's doing and that he promises to finish. If you're in a place of trouble where it feels like, attack is coming towards you, let us pray for you. Like God's people at Mizpah, ask someone trusted to cry out to God on your behalf. As James 5 said, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is any cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faithful will save the sick man and the Lord will raise him. And if he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effects. So I just believe that um, there's something that quickens God's movement in our lives when we trust another person to pray for us and with us. And um, we've got leaders who are trained in prayer. They're, they're just going to want to comfort you and encourage you and just pray for you. Um. So I would just ask the prayer team to come up and encourage you to come. So if you're suffering, come. If you're cheerful, come and praise. If you're sick or need healing or just need God to work in your life, come. It's also time that we confessed with Israel of old and with the hymn writer, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. let your fire fall freshly on us once again. I pray that you would fill us with a desire for authenticity and a wholehearted service to you. God, we confess to you that we fail to serve you and you alone and to act boldly in your name. Thank you that you've provided the final sacrifice that gives us all full access and confidence in your presence for all who've accepted your gift. Revive us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.